Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Steve Chevron is at Federated Airmen's. And what is so important about what Mr. Chevron does is he writes really important notes of the international balances out there and then what to do with your investment at capital. We're thrilled he could join us from Federated Airmen's this morning. Uh, Steve, you know, I, I look at your note, which is basically, hey, everybody, wake up. The U.S. isn't as bad as all. And does that mean that you and the team at Federated stay hugely U.S. centric? No. Uh, actually, for the first time in a while, uh, we, we've closed some of our underweights internationally. I think that the big story that's out there in the marketplace that's hiding in plain sight, but it's the big driver, is collectively large parts of the world are exiting recession. The stay-at-home recession is most likely ended in a lot of places, and we're entering recovery. And in that environment, value parts of the market are likely to catch up. And when you look at European indices, when you look at developed non-US, there's more value in those indices. So it's not a story about growth rolling over and dying. It's not a story about yeah. the US doing poorly, but we think international can start to catch up. This is so, so important, Steve. You and I have talked about it before. Let's review it uh, right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's of such great importance. It's not about tech down and value up. It's on a relative basis, just the value starts to do better, right? Yeah, and within value, right, you have to separate that between the survivors and the, and the dyers, right? There, almost all value was a loser from the pandemic. The question is, which companies are going to survive? Because those companies are going to take share from those companies that don't survive, and they're going to be re-rated higher when they're no longer being priced for you know, pandemic and recession. And so we think there's a lot of alpha to be generated on the value side if you can engage in good research and, and pick the right stocks. Steve, good morning to you. Uh, morning. What is it that drive? what is the catalyst that drives that move into value then? Is it mm -hmm. a vaccine? And, and, and what will be the definitive vaccine news that sort of steepens mm -hmm. the yield curve, drives people into value here in Europe? No, I, I think the vaccine is, is part of this, but let's make no mistake about it. I, it's not an investment strategy to pray for a cure-all. I think any vaccine we're likely to get is more flu vaccine than smallpox vaccine. I think the big catalyst here is just the end of the recession. If you look at PMIs, if you look at retail sales, if you look at housing activity, they're all showing economic recovery, labor markets, they're showing recovery. That in and of itself is a catalyst. Now, what will confirm it is if we continue to see the 10-year yield remain firm or firm. And that's what was different in this past value run than the head fakes we've gotten before, is you got 20 basis points of 10-year bond uh, yields up, which, which you didn't get before. So the bond market's telling you it also thinks that things are normaling, as is the dollar. The dollar weakening is a sign of normalization. You're, you're taking off that safety trade in large part. And we'll get to the dollar, the dollar shortly, perhaps. I'm just looking mm -hmm. at the year-to-date moves on some of these big stock indexes. And uh, many in the U.S., well, the Nasdaq and the S&P, notably, yeah. of course, have turned positive year-to-date. Europe really drags behind. Is that just a function of sector exposure, a function of being more driven by value than growth? Uh, or or does, does Europe deserve that kind of discount right now? I think it deserves a discount, um, and I think it's largely because of the sector exposure. When you look at, at the S&P 500, it has you know, significantly more tech and comm services. When you look at 
you know, the Euro stocks, you've got a lot more financials, you have a lot more energy, you have a lot more big pharma. And so I think that's that's a part of it. But I also think that there have been some overhangs in Europe that are starting to lift. You're seeing a little bit more fiscal cohesion. Up until you know the last day or so, the virus data has been relatively well behaved. And then I think that dollar weakening also helps make you know international markets a little bit more attractive for U.S. investors. So what are you actually doing to deploy capital? I, I want to talk yep. here about a broader institutional uh, idea here at Federated about what sectors actually matter now in terms of participating in the market, Steve, but not getting my head handed to me if I get it wrong. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's a very it's going to be an interesting answer. And it's small caps, actually. Um, small caps is a way of playing this cyclical rotation. But even if the value story doesn't materialize as much as you know we think it may, small caps have another way of winning. In, in, in the first year off of a recession bottom, small cap equities tend to outperform large caps by about 25 percent to five, which is a big boost. They benefit from low rates, and we think they'll benefit when the Fed ultimately announces average inflation targeting. They benefit from a cyclical pickup, um, and we think longer term they benefit from a manufacturing renaissance in the center of the United States. So we've moved overweight to small caps, particularly on the value side. We've closed our underweight internationally, and we remain overweight equities. Those are the three big calls uh, that we're implementing or suggesting that clients implement through their portfolios. And Steve, what drives that manufacturing renaissance in the, in the center of the mm -hmm. United States that you refer to? Uh, in your notes ahead of our conversation, you talk quite a lot about population dynamics and, and not to sound too Malthusian about it. Is it as simple as that or, or, or does that not play well with our ESG credentials? Do we need to find other investment themes other than just where's the population going to grow most? No, but I think population is a big driver. It's not the only one. I think in the long run, the drivers of economic growth are, in fact, population growth and innovation. And, and remember, companies went to China primarily for cheap labor, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But when, you're, when your factory is more technology and less labor in terms of input costs, what you're left with in China are higher shipping costs, higher energy costs, not enough intellectual property protection, uncertainty on the, geo, on the Korean peninsula. Hong Kong's gone from the financial capital of Asia to a state of rebellion. And there have been some transparency issues at least around the beginning of the pandemic. By contrast, when you look at the center of the United States, and I would include Mexico here and parts of Canada as well, but the center part of, of North America, you have easy shipping routes to great end markets, one of the lowest tax rates in the world, abundant energy, geopolitical stability, even in these kind of crazy political times. Um, and we think that for a lot of reasons that becomes an attractive emerging market. And I think policymakers on both All sides right of the political divide are going to, are going to encourage that. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Steve Chivarone here, Federated Hermes, uh, with us this morning. Now, with PGM, and I should say the award-winning PGM in fixed income, Robert Tipp joins us, their chief investment strategist. What do I make of the real yield, Robert Tipp, other than John Farrell's show is award-winning? What do I make of the inflation-adjusted yield in America right now? Yeah, well, this is a difficult time for people to figure out their bonds. Um, there's no doubt. The yields are low. The real yields are negative, and it's hard for people to wrap their minds around what that means. Uh, I tend to focus on, on the nominal yield, and I think that looking yeah. inside the yield curve, that those are likely to remain where they are. If the Fed is going to succeed, 
that is going to be measured in terms of their pushing up inflation expectations. I have a colleague, Kishlide, he likes to think in terms of the real yield. What he would say to me, Tom, is that if they succeed right now, break-evens uh, are below 2%, and the Fed wants to target a PCE of 2 the CPI, which is what break-evens trade off of, and you're going to have to bear with me one second, right? It's a little involved. CPI is usually higher than the PCE. So if the Fed's PCE is going to be 2, the CPI has got to be above 2. Yeah. If the CPI is above 2 and the market believes it, your 10-year real yield, which is at minus 1, it's got to be at minus 1.5 or less. So real yields are negative, and one sign of the Fed's going to succeed success is going to be, does the market believe inflation is going to go to target? It didn't believe it right. before this crisis. It doesn't believe it now. What you just heard there, folks, is an adult conversation on bonds. We've heard this across the show. I can't say enough the value of John writing at Breen Capital and what you're hearing from Mr. Tip of PGM. The way this is reported and fixated on in the media is wrong. I don't know what else to say. It was literally the first project I did for Matt Winkler at Bloomberg. You take the nominal yield, as Mr. Tip just did, and then you look at the inflation expectations, and the residual is the real yield. So with that said, Robert Tip, what would you suggest nominal yields will do? So uh, my, my comments here have been that the, the front end of the curve, like your five years and in, are a little bit expensive, but they're going to stay down here. As the Fed is, is beating the drum, and we may get a little bit of a W-type recovery, a little bit of a setback on growth and deceleration. The middle part of the curve, the 10-year, is going to be in this 40 to 80 range, depending on whether people acknowledge that W or are seeing it or whether they're getting a little more optimistic and they push it up to 80. The back end of the curve, again, diving back inside of the yield curve, I'm sorry, those forward rates that you love, what's priced in in terms of where treasuries are going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now are way too high. They're in the mid to high 2% area. Uh, they were above, you know, and we had a correction mm-hmm. a few months back. But they're back pushing 2%, which says your, your bond yield is too high. So we're looking for stable to flatter yields on average, which means treasuries are going to be outperforming cash. And that's before you even get to spreads. And spread product is trading ahead of the economy. It's gotten very optimistic. It's priced that in. But that's probably going to continue to be the case on balance the next 12 to 24 months. So this is a bond market that looks sick you know, to people from the outside. But when you dive inside of it, you look at what's going on in the economy, what the trajectory is likely to be, uh, you know, zero cash is, is going to be a low hurdle yeah. for the bond market the next 12 to 24 months. So, Robert, you expect a steep, good morning, you expect a steeper curve. What is the biggest threat to no. that view? Does a vaccine change that? What would be the definitive uh, bit of vaccine news that might uh, threaten, uh, the, the, sorry, you expect a flatter curve? What would, what would yes. uh, change that from a vaccine perspective? Absolutely. So that is, uh, you know, the thing is when you have that burst of optimism on, on a vaccine, you know, when and if that hits, uh, we get to the far side of this, then, you know, could you see 10 shoot up to 1% to 130 or even higher, uh, depending on how uh, effective, how quickly things can normalize and so on. Um, but at the, at the end of it, right now, we've had, uh, you know, not even, uh, you know, a 50% recovery in employment and incomes are being sustained by benefit payments. And what we know from past recessions 
even in this case, if it's more rapid, it's going to take a very long time to get incomes elevated. And right now, consumption is at a record level. We printed record retail sales, but incomes are quite depressed. And that you know, speaks to a gap that's going to be filled by some falling back. So there's going to be a lot of, of back and forth. We've seen a lot of rapid fluctuations in the market. I think that you can have bursts of optimism that will temporarily push yields up. But in the long run, the world we were in before this crisis hit, let's say that's what the world looks like with a vaccine, you are looking at sub-2% price and inflation in the Treasury market uh, that needed to be a few times higher if the market was going to believe. So you're going to need a vaccine, and you may need something uh, like a like a renewables boom uh, on a on an energy platform. The U.S. may be joining Europe and their push for green and decarbonization. You know something you know rightly or wrongly, whether you like it or not, that gets you a Y2K type economic boom to get you sustainably over one percent in the ten-year Treasury. Otherwise, you're not going to see it. It's going to be a stable to flatter curve grinding uh, as these secular dynamics of mm. uh, high debt demographics, you know, keep these yields low, keep bond returns boosted. Okay, so we came from a low yield environment, the, 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 the virus hasn't changed that necessarily, we go back to still a low yield environment. But when, as we look for this uh, news flow surrounding a vaccine, Robert, from, the, uh, from right. the perspective of the bond market, should we see this as a very binary thing, like here's some good news on a vaccine that works from a Western drugs developer, uh, and that perhaps would be seen positively by investors, or should we get a bit more granular than Absolutely. that, dig down into you know how long is it going to be effective for? And there'll be a lot of questions, won't there, as soon as we see that knee-jerk right. uh, market reaction. That's right. That's why you want to give that nightmare to people uh, like you to follow and for, for me to try and trade, because uh, the, the underlying dynamics, that long-term secular backdrop, is going to remain unchanged. And in fact, if anything, it's worsened as we've gone through this crisis, and it's going to continue to. The deceleration in workforces, those things are just really Mm -hmm. beginning. So that dynamic is going one way. In the short term, you're going to get these pops in optimism, and they're going to provide trading Mm -hmm. opportunities. But I don't think it's going to change your secular environment of being below 1% in the 10 year in all likelihood. Robert Tiff, thank you so much, particularly that discussion on nominal less inflation expectations deriving uh, the real yield. Mr. Tiff with PGM. Robert Dahl is an interesting guy. He's a guy who is smart, smart, smart on framing the why of optimism. And like our Gina Martin-Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence, Robert Dahl of Nuveen is one of those people that gives you courage to stay in the market so maybe you can make some money with Home Depot. Bob Dahl, you know that you have a stock and they sort of hang out and then they go up off news or something. How do you identify companies like Home Depot or Apple that just every quarter seem to do it and every quarter seem to go up? Uh, Thankfully, own both stocks, Tom. These are companies, first of all, they have products that are interesting. Second of all, they manage their business well. And third of all, they generate a bunch of cash. 
If you can find companies that do those three things rather consistently, generally you're going to be in good shape owning those stocks. I mean, the Home Depot news, the Walmart news, yeah, yeah they're really good news. I mean, I mean, I know you're a glass half full guy, but I want you to speak to the people who are not Robert Dahl. They don't have your experience. They don't have your sense of history. What do you say to the people that have missed the Home Depot boat? How do you get back on board with a total enterprise value to EBITDA that's not in any book you or I ever studied? <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, you have to agree that a year from now, the stock market's going to be higher than it is today. That's my view because the economy will be doing better and earnings will be higher. Maybe we'll have a vaccine. That doesn't mean we won't have short-term short -term bumps along the way. But if that's the case, Home Depot is probably going to be higher a year from now than it is today. So dollar cost average into those stocks that you think are in the stratosphere and you've missed if they have the propositions that we just talked about and aren't ridiculously valued. Home Depot's up a lot, but it's still not horribly expensive. Uh, Bob, good to speak to you. I was reading some research today by the National, or, or that cites the National Association of Active Investment Managers, and he talks about how even those who were previously bearish are just kind of giving up and joining in with this bull, uh, joining in with this rally. Do you sense that you've got more company in your, in your, your bullish view on where U.S. stocks head? So I, I'm commenting about a year from now. I, I'm also in the camp, too many of us are, that we're a little ahead of ourselves in the short term. We've come a long way. We've retraced the entire bear market. Earnings today are nowhere near where they were when stocks were at the all-time high in February. So, uh, And we have an election. We have a bill we can't seem to pass. Uh, valuation levels are not particularly cheap. So I, I can make the cautious case. I don't see big downside. Uh, but those who are uh, a little nervous, if you have a ton of cash, you got to step up and put some in, uh, in my view. Um, if uh, you've been fully invested the whole way mm. and want to take a, a profit or two, I'm fine with that as well. Um, uh, markets don't go straight up in bull markets or straight down in bear markets, as we all know. Uh, Bob, do you like European stocks at this point, or is it just about the uh, the U.S.? I ask because I I'm confused by the market reaction some days during August. We've got headlines aplenty about the virus ticking upwards in various parts of Europe, and yet that doesn't weigh on European stocks as if as if it's a bigger global liquidity story that's dominant. W what what do you make of Europe? You, you just said it. It's the liquidity story for equities overall. The U.S. no longer has the interest rate advantage it had versus the rest of the world. And the U.S. is the most defensive market in the world. So if you postulate that the globe is going to do a little better economically, non-U.S. markets are probably going to do it better. And then you layer on top of that the dollar weakness we've experienced, and uh, I think non-U.S. international stocks do a bit better. Europe's got a lot of long-term problems, as you know, but... Uh, it's fairly cheap, and I think we'll continue to do a bit, bit better here in the near term. Bob Dahl, Nuveen is a TIAA company, and that is a venerable institution looking at the long, long term of investment. The leadership of Roger Ferguson is noted. What do you advise Mr. Ferguson and others about the actuarial assumption that we're all going to live with? What's our actuarial assumption reality? Well, <clears throat> you know, we're... <laughs> Lifespans we know are, are, are getting longer. Um, uh, I, I had a friend who retired recently at 65 and he said, uh, I guess I should go all in bonds. I said, wait a minute. He's married and they're both pretty healthy. I say, at least one of you is going to live to 90. 
don't, don't run away from equities. There, there, there's no 25-year period where stocks haven't beaten other things. So we have to make sure people are, are, are aware of those sorts of things. The other actuarial assumption I think that we have to think about is what's the long-term return for you know the traditional 60-40 blend? It's not going to be in the next 10 years, most likely, Tom, what has been in the last 50 kind of, uh, you right. know, nearly 10%. It's going to be much lower. And that's the reality okay. uh, that these long-term asset allocation programs are going to have to pay attention and, and to. And Bob Dahl knows I'm just setting him up for the second question. I mean, that's the act here, folks. Bob Dahl, the question is, if that's the reality of a lower actuarial assumption, do you go more diversified or less diversified or maybe more general? How do you diversify? Yeah, so you have to have diversification, but, but. it's not just stocks and bonds. Uh, there are alternative assets um, that have to be considered in portfolios. Uh, Nuveen TIA, big investor in farmland, for example. And that, that, that's an area people don't even think about generally, but there's an area for diversification. Within the public markets, yeah. within U.S. equities, where I've spent my career, you got to invest in companies that are going to make it happen. And so you might want a more targeted portfolio in an environment where uh, the gains overall, the market's not going to lift every boat is what I'm trying to say. There's some really important observations there, folks, against the canon of the last 20 years and how things are changing. Robert Dahl, as always, thank you. He is with uh, Nuveen. He is the double-degreed engineer out of Ann Arbor, Garland Gilchrist. He is lieutenant governor of the state of Michigan, and he is vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. You know the math. You know it better than anybody in the party, Garland. you got to get out the vote. How are you going to get the kids out, and how are you going to get blacks out from sea to shining sea? Well, thank you for having me uh, today. And this is exactly the question that Democrats are looking to answer in Michigan and around the country. To put it in perspective, Donald Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes. But Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, who you heard from last night, from a UAW union hall, from a manufacturing facility, her and I won Michigan by 400,000 votes or 10 points. And we did that by simply showing up and making sure that every voter heard from us in every part of the state. And when you talk about black voters in particular, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are running on the most progressive agenda for opportunity and racial equity that any president's ever run on. And we have to tell that story, as you said, from she right. sea to shining sea. Well, you can do it from sea to shining sea, but let's go west to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where they used to build checker cabs. Okay, it's a different Kalamazoo than it was now. How do the Democrats win in Kalamazoo if they're going to go progressive liberal? How much do you have to shift to the center to take Flint and to take Kalamazoo? You got to stay with you got to never shift. You stay with your values. And even in Kalamazoo, we just saw this week uh, the far right neo-Nazi Proud Boys were demonstrating on the streets of Kalamazoo, and they were met with resistance from people who were stepping up and calling for racial justice and racial equity. They were stepping up for an agenda like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and saying no to the rhetoric and the division and the danger and destruction and death of Donald Trump. And so I think in Kalamazoo, in Grand Rapids, in Macomb County, all places where Gretchen Whitmer and I won in 2018, we laid out the blueprint. And I'm proud that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are ready to pick up where we left off and take it to the next level. Lieutenant Governor, good morning from London. If, if we don't have a new stimulus package, who will your voters blame, the Republicans or the Democrats? 
I think that Michigan voters have been clear for this entire crisis that Donald Trump is not only a failure, but his failure, his lack of a national strategy has led to dead Michiganders that did not have to die. And this is personal for me. 23 people in my life have died from COVID-19. They all have stories like the people whose stories we heard about last night. They will hold this president accountable. And you heard Governor Gretchen Whitmer talk about responsibility. Leaders take responsibility. They don't run from it. And that's exactly what Donald Trump has been doing. He's denied. He's lied. He's shirked. He's shrunk away. He's hid from the problems rather than stepping up and solving them. But I'm not worried about that with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And Joe Biden has showed up for the people of Michigan, for the people of Detroit, time and time again over the years. I think it's what he's going to continue to do here. But Lieutenant Governor, if if that's the case and people think that, then it wouldn't be at all a contested election. Do you worry that people say that they'll vote for Joe Biden and actually vote for, for you know, Trump? Do you worry that the polls aren't really reflective of what people will do come November? I think that we always have to consider this to be a close election because it was so close in 2016. We have to work hard. And as I indicated before, we have to talk to every voter. And the Michigan Democratic Party and the Democratic Party across the country never stopped talking to voters after 2016 because we knew we had a lot of work to do. And you're going to see the evidence of that. In Michigan, we've been able to connect with people because we knocked on their doors in 2019. So when we had to stop knocking doors in 2020, we could keep calling them and keep text messaging them. Our movement is strong, and I believe it's going to deliver Michigan and across the country. And we have to run through the finish line. So, no, we're not going to rest on any laurels or any polls. We're going to continue to work all the way through November so that we can have the privilege of working and leading on behalf of all the American people in January. Was that the difference the last time around? You have mentioned twice in this conversation, Lieutenant Governor, the idea of showing up and campaigning. Is a stark reality that Secretary Clinton did not campaign to the greatest advantage four years ago? Well, I think that what we need to uh, focus on is how we can connect with that local community intelligence. Rather than relitigating 2016, what I think we need to focus on is the fact that we learned a lot in 2018. Here in Michigan, for example, Governor Whitmer visited all 83 counties of our state. When I came onto the ticket as her running mate, I visited 40 counties myself. It's about showing up and about being present. And you saw with the virtual convention, we have to get creative about how to do that safely in COVID-19. And I think what you saw is how that creativity can lead to real human connection to elevate the stories of people and of voters and of Americans. And that's what we have to focus on here. We have some really creative tactics we're excited to roll out to engage voters of all stripes, to make sure black people maximize turnout, to make sure the suburbs turn out, to make sure our Latino brothers and sisters turn out. And I'm excited um, that we're going to have record-breaking turnout this year. And when more people vote in Michigan, Democrats win. And we are not afraid of that. We want everyone to vote safely and to vote by mail. We look forward to further updates. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much. Mr. Gilchrist, of course, from Michigan. He's the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. Carla Freeman with us right now of Johns Hopkins, the executive director of Foreign Policy Institute uh, and a professor of Chinese studies. Is Well, Carla, what I find interesting about what Ambassador Bolton said there is not China, U.S. or Russia, U.S., But the thing we never talk about, which is the relationship of China and Russia, you know, in our childhoods, that was a huge deal. Is the relationship with Russia and China as fractious as it was then? It's certainly become uh, a much closer relationship in recent years. Of course, we we, uh, remember uh, fears of the the China-Russia partnership, their alliance of China's first 
alliance uh, uh, forged on, on Valentine's Day in 1950 uh, and uh, that lasted until the late 1960s and was a major feature of the Cold War. Uh, after the split, of course, that uh, helped create an opening for the U.S. and uh, China relationship uh, to uh, develop. But in recent years, uh, China and Russia have become closer, even working out uh, emerging tensions in Central Asia, which is the country, uh, the region, which uh, both countries have uh, substantial energy uh, and other strategic interests in. Dr. Freeman, we talked to Dr. Roach of Yale University about this, Stephen Roach, earlier this morning. Let me ask you the same question. Is the final result of Washington policy of Trump policy or Biden policy, will they be all that much difference in regards to China? That's a really compelling question. And I think that what will happen in Biden administration is that many of the concerns that the Trump administration has raised will carry through to the Biden administration. But I do think that the Biden administration will look for grounds to cooperate where uh, it can with China so that we have uh, continue to have competition, concerns about uh, technology theft and uh, other other worries about China's uh, authoritarian uh, push around the world. Uh, but we will try to find areas where we can work together. There are so many global issues that require U.S.-China cooperation. Uh, but Carla, what you're saying is that the Democrats won't necessarily more, be more sympathetic to China, but that will they'll just do it in a different form? Or do you think that they, they will find actually common ground on things significant like trade? Yes, I do think that we'll, the, the, uh, the Democrats come from a tradition that recognizes that uh, globalization or appreciates globalization as a source for economic growth. And I think that uh, the, the, a Democratic administration will look for ways to restore a, an architecture for international trade. Uh, also look for ways to deal with issues that are important to a democratic ad administration like climate change. Of course, one of the first actions that the Trump administration took was to withdraw uh, the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. So there are areas where the U.S. and China have uh, worked productively, have seen uh, uh, their, their engagement together, if you use that word, has uh, yielded significant benefits economically and also in terms of managing global uh, threats to uh, human security. Um, Carla, what can you tell us about Chinese vaccines? So there's this global race. Russians say they have a vaccine against COVID-19. Where are we on, on China? Will, will the Chinese even use the Russian vaccine? I am not, not sure about whether China would use the Russian vaccine. There are a lot of questions about whether that vaccine has gone through adequate testing. China's on, in a big push to uh, develop a vaccine and uh, is in, I think, third phase testing of that vaccine. And it, it will, uh, it's already setting up uh, plans to uh, distribute the vaccine, uh, sell it widely around the world. Uh, there are a number of companies in, in China with, uh, with, uh, with hopeful signs of, of being able to uh, launch a vaccine fairly fairly soon. Thank you so much to Carla Freeman there of Johns Hopkins and be sure to check out VRUS Go on the Bloomberg for the latest information and tune in every day for our exclusive conversations with Johns Hopkins experts for an inside look at battling COVID-19. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.